The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome to Psych Up Live. I'm your host, Suzanne Phillips, and I want to thank you for joining me and my guest today. We have a very interesting show. Do you consider yourself a risk taker? Would you start a new business? Would you relocate to another part of the country to change your lifestyle? Are you a sensation seeker? Do you love roller coasters? Would you sign on to learn an extreme sport? Today we're going to look closely at risk-taking and sensation-seeking and ask, are they different? Is the brother who will take a business risk the same as a brother who will surf hurricane waves? Are either of these behaviors shaped by family culture? These and many more questions will be answered by our guest and expert, Dr. Ken Carter. Dr. Carter is a professor of psychology at the Oxford College of Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Carter has been a psychotherapist and researcher for more than 20 years, and he's very interested in sensation-seeking and the high sensation-seeking personality. He has an upcoming book, the working title, Buzz, Understanding Thrill Seekers, and the High Sensation-Seeking Personality. Dr. Corda has received awards from the National Institute of Health and other institutions. He has a great TED Talk, TED Talk X, from Emory that you can access on YouTube on this topic. He's appeared in magazines, news programs, and NBC's Today Show. Dr. Ken Carter, welcome back to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk to you. Oh, great. So um, I'm delighted that you're back, but I feel compelled to ask you this personal question. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the TED Talk, you describe yourself as a low-sensation seeker. Um, I think you got a, a score of eight on a possible 40 or something like that. So yeah. I, my question is, what is a person like you doing in a place like this? How did you decide to become an expert in sensation seeking? Well, you know, it's really interesting because um, I think I was just really fascinated by people who were drawn to what I thought were chaotic things. You know, so I, w- I, I would be on 
um, the, there was a bridge in the in that TEDx talk, and and seeing someone want to jump from a bridge made no sense at all to me. And so I, I really felt like there were some people who were, you know, calling chaos into their lives. And I do everything I can to avoid chaos. Right. And so I thought I sort of thought about these people as what I thought of as sort of chaos junkies. And then I started reading in the research about sensation seeking, and I realized that their experience of the world is really very different than my experience of the world. And that just really fascinated me, you know, how you can have two people experiencing exactly the same thing, but they have a very different internal, um, you know, sensation of that experience. And so I've just been fascinated ever since. So if you're on a bridge and you as you were in the TEDx talk, if you're on a bridge watch and, and you're looking down and someone's suggesting you jump with a parachute, let's say, your, your experience of this is what? Terror. <laughs> Sheer terror and fear. You know, and, you know, it's funny because I get asked, you know, we've been working on this book for a little while and people always ask me, so what thrill-seeking thing are you going to do if you're writing this book about thrill-seekers? And it's only the thrill-seekers who ask me that question. That's funny. Um, Because they love that. They love the experience. Um, the non-thrill seekers, uh, people who are low sensation seeking like me, realize that you know, it's just too, it would be too overwhelming. There's just too many sensations for me to process to have an enjoyable time um, doing those kinds of things. And so perhaps you're saying the sensation seekers can't imagine a world where you would not want to do one of these things because the young man who jumps um, and, and who you film he is not physiologically, cognitively, uh, you know, or in any way experiencing this with Hara. Right, right, yeah. And so, you know, you would think that a person that's experiencing that would be, you know, terrified, you know, that they'd be, you know, have their adrenaline pumping. But a lot of the thrill seekers, in fact, a lot of the people that with really high sensation-seeking scores, and, and, and by the way, if you're curious about what your sensation-seeking score is, you can go to my website, drkencar.com, and you can take the sensation-seeking survey, and it will tell you what your scores are and, and explain that to you. Um, but the, high, the higher the sensation-seeking, the calmer the people say they feel when mm. they do things like that. It actually calms them down. It helps to focus them. Um, which makes no sense to me because it doesn't, my, my physiology doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now let's just take a step back because I want to look more at that physiology and neurochemistry. Mm-hmm. What is the difference then between the person who will take risk? They will move to somewhere else and start a new life. They will take a business risk. Are they similar to folks to the sensation seekers? Um, not necessarily. Um, and so it was interesting. I, 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 you know, on my website, people can take the sensation seeking survey and there's a button there where they, if they want to tell their story um, and, and sometimes I'll, I'll interview them and, and, and talk with them more closely to understand things. Um, a guy contacted me maybe about a week or two ago and he said that he, you know, most of his life he had never been frightened at all. And he, you know, sort of saw himself as this sort of fearless person. He was 
a high sensation seeker. And then he decided in order to pursue this, his career, he wanted to go back to graduate school. So he moved his family, started working with graduate school, and had to take this you know, big pay cut. Mm. And for the first time in his life, he said he felt terrified, and he had mm. no idea what to do with that. You know, those kinds of financial kinds of risks, those kinds of things can feel somewhat different to some high sensation seekers. Um, you know, there are some high sensation seekers that do take business risks, but a lot of them sort of see that in a, in a very separate category. Mm. Well, when I hear you s- describe this man, this man tolerated the terror in order mm-hmm. to go back to school and, and accomplish a goal, we are we suggesting our sensation seekers they're going after the terror, Ken? Not, not really. You know, there, there's okay. this real famous quote from Willie Sutton. He's in, he was a famous bank robber, and someone asked him, "Well, why do you rob banks?" And he said, "Because that's where the money is." And it's the mm-hmm. same thing for thrill seekers. They're not after it for the thrill, for the risk itself. They're after for what it, that unique experience that they're having in the moment. In fact, they did a study of, of high sensation seekers who scuba dive. And you would think that high sensation seekers would dive deeper, but they don't. They dive more shallowly because that's where the interesting stuff is. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. It's you know one of the ways that Zuckerman and he's the sort of you know the, you know the broad researcher on sensation seeking. Yes. He says that it, it's the you know the the risk is the price of admission. That you do the risk because you want that experience. If you could have that experience without the risk, you would you would do it. Okay, well that sort of changes things. Now one of the things, and maybe this is a good time to describe it, there. They're not feeling terror. They're not going necessarily after the terror. And you sort of have some research that suggests they actually are feeling very different than you or I would feel jumping off the bridge. Yeah, yeah. So there's a um, hormone that I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. It's called cortisol. Um, so cortisol is that fight or flight um, or freeze um, uh, you know, uh, chemical in our body. It sort of gets us ready to, to rumble or gets us ready to hide if we need to. In high-stress situations, most of us excrete lots and lots of cortisol. Mm-hmm. You know, it sort of gets us ready for those kinds of activities. Now, high sensation seekers, when they're in high sensation seeking activities, they actually produce less cortisol than average and low sensation seekers. So on that bridge, you know, when I watched that guy jump off the bridge, I was probably, I probably had more cortisol coursing through my body (laughs) than the jumpers did um, Mm -hmm. because they just don't really, their bodies don't produce that much in those situations. At the same time, there's a, there's a neurotransmitter called dopamine. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that's been associated with pleasure. And so high sensation seekers actually experience, have higher levels of dopamine when they're in those situations. So they feel more pleasure, but less stress which is a really great combination. You know, why yes. wouldn't you want to have lots of pleasure and no stress? And so it's those kinds of environments that produce that combination in them. So the question that comes to mind is, hmm? this is a kind of chicken and egg thing. So if I have a little boy who from the time he, you no, know, the question is really, does my definition 
of jumping off the bridge as an interesting thing to do to see if I can do it and my chute will open, does that, in fact, that definition then impact my neurophysiology? If I Mm. see this as, hey, this is cool, or let me just crawl inside that cave, this is cool, and they're not registering a danger situation, they're registering right. an interesting. So they, is their cortisol lower in this situation or just in general? So I, I think their cortisol is lower in the situation. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the more times they may do something, the lower their cortisol may become. Right. Um, because, right. you know, behaviors do something that's called, they habituate, which is a fancy way of saying the more you do something, the less power it has over you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if, you know, Nick, who's a jumper, the, the fifth or sixth or tenth time he's, he jumped, it wouldn't be as sort of interesting as the first time that he jumped. And so those experiences that you do, do have an impact on you, your, your, your physiology um, through that um, habituation, for sure. Mm. Now, the other thing you found, and I don't know if this applies to risk takers and sensation seekers, is there's a boredom factor for some right. sensation seekers. And what is that? So one of the, so there are four different components to um, sensation seeking. So if you take it, you'll find out your score on four different components. One is thrill and adventure seeking. That's sort of after these seeming you know these things that seem risky. The other is experience seeking. Those are sort of non-risky but sort of interesting, emotionally interesting kinds of things. Um, then there's disinhibition, and that's your ability to be unrestrained. And the other last one that you asked about was boredom susceptibility. And there's two pieces to boredom susceptibility. One is how easy it is for you to get bored, and the other is how much you can tolerate being bored. Some people, when they get bored, get irritated or angry when they get bored. Um, My boredom susceptibility score is really low. (laughs) You know, I almost never, I can't think of a time that I've been bored. You know, I'm one of those like, you know, um, uh, technology geeks. And I remember when the very first iPhone came out, I had to wait in the mall in that one one of those long, long lines to get it. And I waited for maybe six or seven hours. No big deal for me. I could just wait for seven hours and it's not, you know, someone that has a high boredom suitability score, even the thought of having to wait that long can really irritates them. That's so interesting because I was just thinking if I've jumped from the bridge many times and I, I, I became bored, I'm looking for a higher bridge. Right. Yeah, and so you know, some, some high sensation seekers have average or really low boredom susceptibility scores. And so they'll do the same activity over and over and over again. And they... They don't get bored of it. They experience something new every time they do it. So mm-hmm. a lot of people think, oh, well, sensation seekers are always going to ratchet it up higher and higher and more risky and more risky things. That's not necessarily the case. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of high sensation seekers will just do the same things. So we're really seeing there's some differences here. Now, have you ever done a followed anyone or has there been any work done long term where we see how someone was as a teen, and if they were a high sensation seeker as a teen or even a risk taker, because so many teens are, 
at 50 or 60, are they still sensation seekers? Is there a persistent personality trait here? Right, is this right. A, what, I mean, how you're calling these personality traits? Right, right. And and there, so there. So we know that high that that sensation seeking does change over time. Um, three of the four components tend to decrease as people get older. Um, the only one that doesn't decrease is boredom susceptibility. So if you were mm. if you get bored easily as a kid, you're probably gonna get bored easily, easily as an adult. Um, okay. It tends to peak in early adolescence, um, which probably explains why all those YouTube videos of people doing crazy things are all like you know teenagers and a little mm-hmm. bit older. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that a lot of high sensation seekers have told me, and I actually didn't find this in the research. This is really coming from you know talking to people, is that. At a certain age, when they feel like they have anchors in their lives, these are important relationships for children um, or, you know, loved ones, those loved ones will sort of anchor them and stop them from doing things that might be overly dangerous. Um, And so sometimes people will have friends that act as those anchors that will tell them, you know, you really shouldn't do that. Or they'll, they'll, or if they're thinking about doing things, it'll give them pause. Um, mm. So a lot of them will have that. But I feel like that's really kind of a environmental thing that sort of reins mm-hmm. them in a little bit. Mm. I can think of someone who, as he describes himself to me, he's now 60. But as a young man, he really pushed the envelope. He, he, he was one of these racing car kids and drag racing people and over the border and all kinds of crazy stuff. And now he, he does still ride a motorcycle. Now, yeah. it's a little tamer, but he just came back across country through rain, etc. Um, so he's still in the, in the game, but yeah. it's a modified yeah. game. Right. And so there, there are two things that could happen. I mean, of course, your sensation-seeking score can change over time, but his is probably higher than most. Um, mm-hmm. But so the kinds of things that he needs to do to have that sensation may be a little, you know, maybe a little less than they would have been when he was younger. And he also may be pulled back because of, you know, sort of responsibilities he may feel. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to have to take a brief break. But when we come back, let's mm-hmm. talk about... People vicariously getting thrills or taking risks through observing someone else, a family member, a spouse, um, and also the role of family in risk-taking and sensation-seeking. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Ken Carter. He's an expert on sensation-seeking and the high sensation-seeking personality. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you are seeking more confidence, it is time to feel good naked. That's the name of the radio show hosted by Laura Redmond. Each week, Laura and her guest experts are here to help you be you. In order to be truly successful and happy, you need self-confidence, self-love, and self-respect. 
Feel Good Naked Radio will teach you how to embrace these qualities and make your life more fulfilling and meaningful. Listen live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be proud of who you really are from the inside out. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Inner Revolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Ken Carter on sensation-seeking and risk-taking. And we were just about to look at just how much of sensation-seeking or risk-taking, and maybe we'll speak about the differences here, can be attributed to personality traits and how much can be attributed to the family you come from. It's the nature-nurture question. What do you think, Dr. Carter? Yeah, there's been some research about this, and um, I believe they're thinking that about 60% of it tends to be genetic um, for a couple different reasons. Number one, it tends to run in families, um, which is one thing. Um, there are some um, you know, biochemical aspects. We were talking about the, the cortisol piece of it, um, and there are a couple of other biochemical aspects that, that might explain what's happening in a biological way. But we also know that in the environment can impact it as well. Um, some of the research says that people that grew up in really strict households tended to have higher levels of sensation-seeking. Um, I kind of question some of that research because I, I wonder whether or not people who were risk-takers as kids perceived their parents as being very strict because they didn't right. want them to do those crazy things. Um, and also uh, people who report being very spiritual or, or religious have lower levels of disinhibition. Um, so there are some sort of uh, behavioral things that can impact it. It also, it may be that high sensation-seeking parents encourage their kids to do these high sensation-seeking things. Um, we know that, um, you know, parents' fears can sometimes um, also be duplicated in their kids. 
Um, and it may just be that their that adventuresome um, nature can be duplicated in kids um, behaviorally as well. So I think it's a little bit of both. Mm. Well, there's definitely a parental learning factor here. So if my sons years ago year, years ago were standing on the beach with with their father, my husband, and they were hurricane waves and everyone else was getting out of the water and they were suiting up to go into the water, Ken, the message to the boys who will surf anything is, this is fine. I, on the other hand, was holding the phone ready to hit 911. So <laughs> if, it, if it were just me on the beach, I don't know they would have gotten the message that you're great swimmers, we can do this. Right, but, exactly. Because like, there was a danger factor there, let's face it. So I think there's families like that. But that being said, I spent the week asking anyone I came across, who's, who are the risks, who would you define as the risk takers? I used risk takers in your family. And a number of people said to me, what type of risks? And then they differentiated that some people were, you know, would take a risk in business and some other people would uh, run a marathon even though they hadn't trained that much. So there really, it seems to be, there is um, maybe, as you're saying, both the genetic piece and the family style piece at play here. I think so. I think so for sure. And I, and you're right. I feel like we learn, we definitely learn fears um, from our environment. You know, it could be our family. It could be around school. Um, and we, we learn that there are certain sort of reasonable risks to take. You know, driving in a car is a very risky thing if you think about it. But we learn that it's a reasonable risk that people will take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think about gender differences do you think men and women differ in the in the risk taking and sensation seeking? Yeah, this is actually a fascinating topic because I think we're in the midst of a of a, a transition here. So typically, men and women um, had slightly different levels of the total sensation seeking score, where men would score higher. Especially, they would score higher in thrill and adventure seeking, and women tended to score a little bit higher than men on experience seeking. Mm. Um, but if you, since this research has been going on for so long, you can actually look at trends, um, not only in the United States, but they've used this survey all around the world. Um, and, and what they're finding that is, is that that gap between the total scores for men and women is getting narrower and narrower every year. And mm. so to me, this is also evidence of a cultural shift. Mm. Um, and so it's more culturally, socially acceptable for you know, women race car drivers or being in the military. And I think that some women were, may have been held back from doing those things because of the um, social pressure not to. Mm, that's, that's such an interesting finding. Now, one thing, and I'm not sure where this fits in, one of our uh, guests was Dr. Therese Houston, and she, her book is How Women Make Decisions. And one of the things, she, she reported research that said in the corporate boardroom, in everyday situations, there was very little difference between risk-taking with men and women. But as soon as the situation became a high-stressed, have-to-make-a-decision, men became the greatest risk-takers, and women began collecting data before they'd make a decision. So, it, you know, there's all kinds of interesting women in the workplace yeah. issues there. Um, but, it, you know, you, that's the other interesting part, is that under what conditions... 
will a person become a risk taker or be buckle down and become more cautious? Right, right. And I, I haven't studied a lot about um, sort of business risks. Um, I've read a lot of research about gambling. I've read a lot of research about um, uh, people who have jobs were um, were like adventure sports jobs. Mm-hmm. And so I think it, it's, you know, and a, and a lot of the people I've talked to say that it's, 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 it's a little bit different when it involves other people. Right. And so my guess is that business risks may be a little bit different in terms of how they're conceptualized because it's not necessarily always just you that's, right. that's being impacted. Right, right. That's such a good point. One of the things that I that I love that you've said before on our show and even in the TEDx talk is that when you considered that there's somewhat of a different neurochemistry either that prompts the sensation seeking or the risk taking or that kicks in when they're faced with danger is that not a, perhaps these are not crazy chaos piece of people but the people we need to be emergency room docs to be firefighters to meet someone who when the alarm goes off don't panic but right. actually you know go forward so it's 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 hard to parcel out but it's very interesting to hear that culturally women and men are getting closer in terms of the differences there yeah absolutely i mean i i have you know my self esteem is as is very intact but we don't need a whole world of people like me <laughs> that are low sensation seekers. Right, um, right. We, we, we really need a mix. I, you know, people like me are the people that, you know, stop, you know, stop the, you know, uh, stop the bad things from happening. But if the bad things do happen, we need those high sensation seekers to, to, to help correct things. Mm. So given the importance of the mix of people, I remember going online uh, when you came on the show before because I wanted to do a blog on do sensation seekers marry other sensation seekers. Right. So uh, there's plenty of sites that will tell you how to have a sensation seeking marriage. I mean, they're a riot in and of themselves. <laughs> but, but the question is, what do you think? You think opposites attract on, on this uh, particular dynamic? Well, what do you think? They've actually done some research about this, and what they find is that um, for, from the high sensation seekers' perspective, it doesn't matter. Um, for, for high sensation seekers are just as likely to um, partner with um, low, average, or high sensation seekers. As long as they find the person engaging and interesting, um, they're, they're in it. Um, high, low sensation seekers um, can tolerate high sensation seekers sometimes, but they can get a little uh, frightened of the things they do. And mm-hmm. so sometimes the high sensation seeker can feel um, uh, restrained by uh, an, a low sensation seeking partner. Um, but if they can find things that they like to do together that may not necessarily be dangerous, and maybe it's trying interesting restaurants or foods or travel, um, it, it, can, it can work quite well. Well, especially, as you said, women tend to be more inclined to be experience seekers. So right. if they're paired up with someone who is going to go to Europe with them but also climb a few mountains while they're there, maybe it somehow works. 
Yeah, or even just try weird foods or things Mm -hmm. like that, (laughs) those kinds of things. In fact, I think it's a really good tool for couples to take. Um, So if both um, uh, couples took the hyacinth-seeking survey, they may discover that they may have some commonalities in experience-seeking. And Mm. a a hyacinth-seeker may may swap out that love for danger as long as they're doing something that seems interesting to them. Mm. Now, just for our listeners to know, I'm just going to read two questions from the Sensation Seeking questionnaire. So uh, this questionnaire says things like choose A or B. I like wild, uninhibited parties, A. B, I prefer quiet parties with good conversation. Um, I like to explore a strange city or section of town by myself, even if it means getting lost. B, I prefer a guide when I'm in a place I don't know. So these are the type of questions that parcel out uh, the level and the score for sensation seeking. It's really, really interesting because you do cover things beside jumping off bridges there. Exactly. And so Zuckerman developed the survey um, quite some time ago. I, I tweaked it a little bit, some of the language, so that it was a little bit more current, but I think it gives a good variety of different situations that a person might might find themselves in. Um, yeah. I think what you said before is true in terms of partners from what my experience of working with couples is um, it can change over time. So sometimes the sensation seeker is a little disheartened because once they have children, let's say the woman, she is no longer comfortable with him jumping off bridges. Right. And so all of a sudden the the variables have changed and there's more a feeling of being criticized. And so I think I like your idea of people taking <laughs> taking the um test and thinking about maybe how to reframing different ways to do this that don't involve danger, but then you see you're hearing a non sensation seeker talking here. Once we yeah. wipe out all the danger, we've lost all the all the impact. Well, I think there are two things going on. I think it, it, it helped me just un- may have a better understanding of individuals' motivation. So now when I'm on the highway and I'm driving and someone speeds past me really quickly, I'm not thinking that they're doing that in order to be intimidating. They're not doing that. Like, they're, they're not all hyped up. They're calm when they're driving like that. And so... One of the things that I know that some high sensation seekers have trouble with is um, empathy with the average and low sensation seekers because they don't perceive the activities that they're doing as dangerous. And so when someone says to them, why do you have to do such dangerous things, that may not make any sense to them. You know, for them, these are fun things. So there's not mm-hmm. a, the, the, the danger is not what they're after. Mm. I think that that's probably very true in terms of the empathic kind of breach there. The other thing I think some sensation seekers or people who we think or would say to us, and this is what someone wrote to me today, is that it may look like a rock climber is a sensation seeker, but there's high skill behind it. Or it may look like what someone's doing, you know, is wild and crazy and dangerous, but really... This is truly an expert skier who's used to a certain terrain. So for those who don't know the skill behind it, it seems crazy, but actually may be far from crazy. Right, right. And so there are, there are things that, that sort of lower the likelihood that it's going to be dangerous. 
And again, mm-hmm. the danger is not that important to that high sensation. So what they're looking for are the sensations, how they feel in that moment when they're doing those kinds of things. Um, and, and there are some activities that, that take a lot of practice and skill to, to get quite right. And the other thing I think is sort of fascinating about high sensation seekers is the amount of trust they have in their abilities to, to get things right. Um, mm-hmm. They trust their bodies, they trust their mind, and they know that they're going to that, that that they'll do what they need to do in the moment. Um, one phrase I heard over and over again was analysis is paralysis. Um, that their body's just going to instantly do what it needs to do to get out of those dangerous situations, and more often than not, it does. So, so that's a great comment. Analysis is paralysis because that explains. You said you're watching the young man with Hara jump from the bridge and his chute is not opening. And he later tells you he was in a calm flow type state. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which I would not, I wasn't even in a calm flow type state of watching him. But for him, it was calm. And that calmness actually lasts longer than the activity. Some high sensation seekers tell me they feel calm and focused for hours and days and even weeks after they've done a high sensation seeking activity. It centers them. So it both, success at doing the jump depends on your ability to get your mind into that zone. And maybe that's fostered by self-confidence in body and mind. And then once you are into the fall you're neurophysiologically and emotionally in a different place. Yes, yes. And you feel pleasure, you feel focused, um, and people say they feel more alive when they've done those kinds of things. So would we think that this has the makings of addiction? Well, there is some research that says that high sensation seekers are at a higher risk for addictive conditions than average and low sensation seekers Some of the research says that that might be true because high sensation seekers don't see those substances as dangerous as average and low, so they're more likely to try them. Um, And so I don't think that they're at risk, um, you know, that all high sensation seekers are, are, um, are... susceptible to that, but, I, but there is some research that says that they, they may be more likely to try substances than average and lows. Mm. Well, one thing you said before that would be a not addictive piece is that they don't need, they don't necessarily need to need a higher and higher and higher bridge. No, you said no su- not right. at all. Okay, right, right. And then we know that there's a tolerance that um, kicks in with addiction that, you know, takes things somewhat out of control. Um, right, right. And that doesn't necessarily happen to most high sensation seekers at all. Right. Actually, the more you studied them, the more they sort of made sense from their perspective for you. It did. It did. And that's yeah. one of the things I think is so sort of fascinating about psychology in general. I mean, you, you live in your, in your own experience of the world. And for you, green is green and orange is orange and, you know, a tree is a tree. And then all of a sudden you realize that someone else's perspective on the world is completely different. What they Mm. experience when they're looking at something, how their body feels, is different than yours. And, Mm -hmm. And... and, I, and I'm happy to also realize that I'm not, I'm not going to feel <laughs> what they experience when they're, when they're in front of, you know, those kinds of things. And to me, that's just, that's, that's the fascinating thing about people. 
It is terrific. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about vicarious thrill-seeking. Who are the people who go to the horror movies? Who are the people who watch a movie like Point Break and watch these kind of activities? You've been listening to Psych Up Live. I'm here with Dr. Ken Carter. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Hoarding has become a tremendous issue worldwide, not just for those who hoard, but for the people who love and care about them. On Take Back Your Life, when your things are taking over, host Elaine Birchall helps you to understand and get unstuck from the clutter in your life, no matter how severe. Our program brings you practical strategies to help you get started and maintain your goals. Listen live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. A wave of change is happening in our world now. A new feminine way of leadership is emerging. Yet this is not about women taking over. This rise of the feminine is helping men too. Join host Gina Lazenby, award-winning businesswoman, best-selling author, and speaker on feminine wisdom as she reports on the rise of the feminine with inspiring stories of women who are coming into their own and finding their unique purpose. Tune in and join this conversation in the rise of the feminine each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here speaking with Dr. Ken Carter. We've had a great discussion here about sensation-seeking, risk-taking, now, one of the questions that I asked right before the break is, what about horror movies? And what about, how does that fit into sensation-seeking, uh, Ken? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, so I, high sensation-seekers love sensations, right? It, isn't, it may not even matter what kind of sensation it is. Um, and they also, I mean, especially if you have a higher level of boredom susceptibility, you don't want to be able to predict what's going to happen. That's, that's really boring for them. 
And so there's been a lot of research on the kinds of jokes that high sensation seekers tell, the kinds of movies they like to watch, mm. the kinds of, of, of art they prefer, and, and they prefer things that, that seem sort of chaotic um, because if they can figure out what's going to happen, it's really boring for them. So that's okay. why horror movies are so exciting for them because you're, you're not supposed to be able to figure out what's going to happen. These are, these are things that you don't encounter on your every, in your everyday life. So they, they love that kind of stuff more often than not. Now, here's the kind of responses people have given me about horror movies over the many, many years that I practiced. So some people would say, love it. Love seeing how they've made it so real to have this guy's head chopped off, right. whatever it happens to be. Or I love, I love that terror. I love the terror. I have some folks, <laughs> one man, I, I loved his perspective. He would say, if I'm depressed, I go to a horror movie. It jolts me right out of the depression. Okay. But many people would say from the time I'm a kid, there's no way I can see a movie like this because it keeps replaying. I actually are transported into believing it's real, and I can't shake it. So people really are very different about their experience of this. You're saying most sensation seekers enjoy them. Yeah, I think more often than not, they, they would. I mean, you know, and, and as a low sensation seeker, I can certainly understand the kinds of things that the other person said. I mean, I don't necessarily like having my emotions, you know, sort of you know, jerked around from side to side and bashed <laughs> around. Um, and, and I, but I can also understand why a high sensation seeker may crave that. You know, they really want that roller coaster of emotions, yeah, I mean, there are people who will go, Halloween's coming up, there are people who will go and they'll say, oh, it wasn't frightening enough, it wasn't horrifying right. enough, and there are other people who you couldn't get them in a, within a mile of it. Um, exactly. But, I'm, you know, but, I'm the one that's more than a mile from it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. But it's interesting in that if your neurophysiology is different and your boredom level is different and you mm-hmm. have a different, as you said before, you have a different perspective on things. It right. really starts to make sense that you would choose something that you might not choose, Ken, but that someone might be searching for the most horrifying of films and watch it many times or even yeah. look for the next one. Because uh, you wonder actually- how... Yeah, there's actually one more uh, biological piece I want to add in here. There there are two different systems that we have in our body. One's called the um, behavioral inhibition system. It's sort of our avoidance, um, you know, network. And then we have a, a behavioral activation system. That's our approach network. And so high sensation seekers have a very high approach network and a fairly low avoidance network. And so when they see things that should be that that are that are dangerous, they don't seem to be repelled by them that much. And that's another piece that sort of explains why they may love these kinds of things. These are the people and I have I have a brother who I love, but if there's a danger somewhere out west, I'm texting him because I figure he's heading there. So, right. Exactly. You know, yeah. These these are people who you're right. They, they have a. They're not avoiding it. They are not avoiding it. You almost get the feel they're looking, and actually you're confirming it. They're they're looking, they're looking for it. Um, yeah. So so one of the other questions. Uh, well, before we even move on to another question, I just want to make mm-hmm. sure our listeners have a chance to first of all know about your website. Uh, the TEDx talk, how could they access you? 
Yeah, my website is drkencarter.com. It's just D-R-K-E-N-C-A-R-T-E-R.com. And when you go to that website, you'll see uh, uh, you know, links for taking the sensation-seeking questionnaire. You'll see link, a link for um, watching that TEDx video as well. So all of those things uh, are on there. And if you are a high sensation seeker and you want to share your story, you can find um, a link there where you can um, you know, t- t- contact me to share your story about sensation-seeking. Well, sounds terrific. So now let's get a little bit of a glimpse of this new book. Your new book coming up is Buzz, Understanding Thrill Seekers and the High Sensation Seeking Personality. So give us a mini preview of this. Yeah, so it's really a book in some ways uh, that wasn't what I was expecting it was going to be when I started. It's really a book celebrating high sensation seekers. I started off trying to figure out what was wrong with them, and I discovered <laughs> so many things that was that were right about them. And so um, I'm, I'm, it's it's really my you know sort of discovery about uh, high sensation seeking people that I've interviewed over the last couple of years, and then working in the research um, about it as well. I talk about the biological things. I talk about uh, travel and I talk about relationships. I talk about work and, um, and and I sort of see it as a superpower in some ways. Um, but I do touch a little bit on the dark side of sensation seeking. What are some of the problems that being a, a high sensation seeker could cause? Um, but it's a book that's sort of uh, an, an everyday person's kind of book and not clinical and it's just a, a, a hopefully it'll be a fun read um, and you'll uh, get a new perspective on yourself and other people in your life. Do you think it would prompt people to actually take a bit more risks? Um, you know, um, maybe. <laughs> I think... I think I think it will help them to understand the risks that people in their life might take or the risks that they have taken. I've gotten emails from people all around the world who've contacted me, who've, who've watched the TEDx video and, and read some of the stuff I put up on my website, and they said that it they gave them a better sense of themselves and it gave them a way of understanding other people, um, and that's what I'm hoping for. Mm, okay, that, that's interesting. That's really good. It sounds very good. I just read something that said... If you ask young people about regrets and risks, um, they might have regrets about something they did that was stupid or whatever. Older people, the older people regret not taking enough risks. So I started Mm. wondering, you know, there's, I guess there's a real continuum here with risk taking, sensation seeking, but it's, the book sounds terrific, really terrific. So now with all these years of research on this topic, um... I wondered if there's anything that really surprised you, Ken. What's the most surprising finding you have come upon related to risk-taking and sensation-seeking, both or either? Yeah, you know, I think you know, the most surprising thing I think I've discovered, one of the surprising things, um, is that we think of these high sensation-seekers as being really brave people, but to me, bravery is being frightened but sort of persevering through it. 
a lot of the high sensation seekers, if you think about it, aren't actually brave because they don't see these things as dangerous. Um, it's mm. actually the low sensation seekers, the, the anxious people among us that are the brave ones in some ways. Um, I talked to a high sensation seeker the other day who had been frightened for the first time, and he didn't know how to cope with that fear. Mm. And it gave him a lot of empathy uh, for people who experience anxiety and fear on a daily basis. And so what I'm hoping is that, you know, that this will give high, high sensation seekers and low sensation seekers a little bit of empathy for each other. The way that we engage in the world and the way that our body feels sometimes isn't really up to us. And mm. that um, if you can understand that from someone else's perspective, it may help you to understand them a little bit better. It may also factor in with parents understanding that while there's a nature-nurture piece here, their children may be very different. They, yeah. You know, some sometimes if there's one person who doesn't want to jump from the bridge and the whole family is jumping, that person feels like, what, what's wrong with me? But we're really right. looking at differences here. And, you know, you're really suggesting that without deciding one's good, one's bad, the really acceptance, there are real differences from neurophysiology on perspective, life goals that make room for everyone here. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping it'll be, the book will be a celebration of. Would would you say that in your interviews you interviewed more men than women? You know, it was about half and half, actually. Oh, good. You know, I've I've, I've interviewed uh, a, a woman that I call Roller Girl, who used to roller skate through traffic in downtown Chicago. Okay. Um, <laughs> I just interviewed a woman who uh, calls herself the White Rabbit. She's going to travel for three hundred days with no money by couch surfing on, on people's uh, sofas all around the world. So there are Whoa. definitely some high sensation seeking women out there for sure. That- that's fabulous. Listen, um, Dr. Carter, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You are always a pleasure, and what you say is just fascinating. So good luck to you and the book, and we have to step back with you again. Absolutely. Thank you. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast. This will be a podcast by this evening on my site, on my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes, on Sketcher. So please, if you didn't catch it this afternoon or didn't catch all of it, you can listen to it in segments all over as a podcast. Drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Next week, we welcome Ashton Appleton on the show. She's the author of This Chair Rocks. And Ashton's taken on the question of ageism. Have you been stereotyped because you're too young and people think how much could you know or too old and people think you don't know anything anymore? Well, Ashton's really raising consciousness about that. You're going to find her very interesting. Don't miss it. Until next week, please take care. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 